So the sermon has already been articulated by a lot of people, uh, a lot of faithful ways. If you've been listening to the prayers and the welcome and uh, different comments that have been made, I could not be more encouraged to belong to a congregation that comes uh, in so many ways weekly with the pump primed, with the coals hot, easy to start a fire in the hearth. Hearth? The hearth. Yeah. Welcome to Grace Church. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, the place where you build a fire in a home so that it not spread to other parts of the home. In that thing, um, yeah, your hearts are like that and so many times so warm. But if your heart's not warm, you're welcome as well. And we pray that in a few moments, you'll get close to the fire of the heart of God. Last week, we talked about the question, what is your strategy for kingdom investment? You have one. It may not be a good one. Um, If your strategy is no strategy, that's your strategy. And as the old adage goes, no plan is a bad plan. God has a lot to say about us investing our all for Christ. Jesus said about a poor woman who put two small coins into a coffer that she put in more than everybody else in his estimation because, to quote Jesus, she put in all she had to live on. That's a strategy that accords with Scripture for investing in Christ's kingdom. We give our whole life to Christ. And that was reflected in that lady's offering. That was last week's question. Today is going to try to just continue with it. And it's what's our strategy to get the gospel to the people who are not yet born, the next generation. The primary audience of today's sermon is not people who came with a warm heart today. It's those who have not yet been born. I'm preaching today with an aim for the eternal joy of those who will live long after our generations are dead and gone. Until Christ does Hebrews 1.12 and rolls up creation like a garment. I'm preaching for their joy and how we can participate in it. It has been said uh, by many that the gospel is always one generation away from extinction. So if all the Christians today stop telling people about Jesus, if all the churches close their doors, and if all the Bibles are burned and no apps exist anymore for people to read Scripture, then the next generation won't hear. So the, the gospel is, in that sense, always one generation away from extinction. And you may have heard that the well-known German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche boasted that he would live to see, quote, the Bible become a relic in his own lifetime. And to his great dismay, Nietzsche has now been perishing since his death in 1900. So for 122 years, he has been perishing, and meanwhile, Hebrews 4.12 is just marching on. The alive, active Word of God is just continuing to be preached every single day all around the world, and it's continuing to advance into new cultures all the time because Isaiah 40 verse 8 is true, and nobody can undo it. The Word of our God endures forever. The final sentence of the book of Acts asserts, Acts 28, 31, that until the return of Jesus, the Word of God will continue to advance throughout the world unhindered. God's going to do that work. We can participate in it. 
Today's sermon's about the untold millions of embodied souls. That's what you are. You are a soul, you have a body. You have a soul that will never die. You will be reunited with your body in the resurrection. You're an embodied soul, and today's sermon is about the untold millions of embodied souls in future generations who are going to continue to be born until Christ returns, long after you and I, like Nietzsche, are in our eternal home, which is either everlasting bliss or torment. Christians intuitively care about the spiritual welfare of those who will be born after we're dead and gone. There's a very logical, kind of Captain Obvious reason that this is so intuitive to the heart of every Christian. And that is, many who lived before us cared very deeply about getting the gospel to us. Here we are literally at the ends of the earth, if you want to count from Jerusalem geographically to Memphis, Tennessee. We're about as far away as you could get from where Jesus lived and died and rose again. And the reason we're sitting in this room today is because a lot of people over those 2,000 plus years have cared very deeply about getting the gospel to the people who would be born after they died. So logically, intuitively, that's why we're here. But more significantly, there's a theological reason that we care about the salvation of those not yet born. And the uppermost reason is because our Jesus is worthy of the reward of his suffering. He deserves their praise. He ought to get it. We care about that. We care about the people that Jesus has purchased by his death, like people before us cared about us, and Jesus being magnified in our life, we care about their salvation as well. So here's the sermon. There's two main things we can do, I believe. We can do a lot of other things, but there's two main things we can do in our lifetime to get the gospel to those who will be here after we're dead and gone. So before I read the sermon passage, I'll tell you the two things, and they'll correspond to our two main points. Number one, we can devote our life to a biblically faithful church. That's the main way to be involved in God's kingdom purposes. Nothing is more countercultural, Christian maturing, gospel advancing in our lifetime and beyond than our life being grafted into a local body of Christ. That's the number one investment we can make for kingdom advance. The number one most successful missions strategy in history is being a faithful church member. Our primary vocation as Christians is to treasure Christ. He saved us, to quote Thessalonians, so that he would be magnified in us. But we cannot treasure him accurately alone. So we treasure him together. That's what a local church is. That's what we mainly aim to do. Belonging to a local church does a bunch of things. Biblically, it does at least these two things. It preserves the purity of biblical doctrine and the essence of the gospel. And it enables us to amplify our impact in the world more so than if we were just one seed planted in soil trying to produce a whole crop. No, a lot of seed planted in soil produces a better crop. To quote Ephesians, Christians are to, quote, grow up in all aspects into Jesus who is the head, and that 
sentence was written to a whole church. We do that together. We preserve the gospel as what God said, local churches are, quote, the pillar and support of the truth. That's how the gospel got to us. A bunch of Christians before us clustered their lives together in accountable relationships and protected the purity of biblical doctrine and the essence of the gospel, and it just kept getting passed down to us. As Jude said, the brother of the Lord, we are to contend earnestly for the faith that has once for all been delivered to the saints. As we do that, then the next generation gets to stand as we do on the shoulders of those who came before them. Our fidelity to Jesus paves the way for future, future generations to, to hear the truth as it is in Jesus, Ephesians 4.21. Join a church, belong to a church, give your life to a church, thick, thin, good, bad, uh, times of leanness, times of prosperity, spiritually and otherwise, grow together with God's people. That's the greatest investment we can make. A second investment, and then we'll get to our sermon text, is we can pool our resources to invest in a gospel lighthouse so that the next generation of Christians in our corner of the world will have a space to proclaim and propagate the gospel to generations that will come after us. Where is Grace Church? I wonder how you would answer that question. We are wherever you go. That's where we are. But the church, the ecclesia, that's the New Testament word for church, is visible when we're assembled. So we live wherever your address is. That's where we are. And we are wherever you work and leisure. Whatever you do, that's where Grace Church is. But together, collectively, assembled, we are the church gathered, the church visible. Two weeks ago, I had the privilege of standing and preaching in a pulpit that is a meeting house that was established 199 years ago in Covington, Georgia. First Baptist Church Covington, a friend of mine who grew up in the church that we prayed for this morning, First Baptist West Memphis, now the pastor of that church, in a city that's called Covington, quote, the Hollywood of the South. There's no way, there is no way that the current congregation today could afford or even have access to the property that is so strategically located in the heart of Covington, Georgia, even if they wanted to buy it tomorrow. They couldn't afford it and it wouldn't be available. But two centuries ago, a bunch of Christians in that church sacrificially gave their resources to establish a footprint in a city where a flag is still being raised that says Jesus Christ is Lord. What I'm trying to say is if Jesus tarries 200 years from now, we should care that the 30,000 people today who live, work, and leisure in downtown Memphis every single day, we should care that the many more thousands of them have access to the gospel you are about to hear. Because we're the first generation of Grace Church, I'm talking especially to those who are members here, for this sentence, we're a 15 and a half year old congregation. It is incumbent upon us, just like the saints of First Baptist Covington and many other congregations in church history, it is incumbent upon us to set up the subsequent generations of grace churchers to have gospel access and gospel success. Maybe 200 years from now, the pastor of that church in Georgia will come preach at this congregation 
And then he'll go back to them and report of the good work that the Lord is doing in our midst. So today's our second and final sermon in our Jesus is Worthy series, and that's a long introduction to get you to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Jesus is worthy. He's worthy of all that we are and all that we have. And Jesus is worthy is also the banner over our property development campaign, vision, whatever you want to call it. Why does Grace Church want a new building? For those who don't know, we bought a parcel of land. It's 1.25 acres. It's half a city block. It is one block that way, I think, over there. Why do we want a new building? Can we just be super honest? So we don't have to do set up and tear down anymore, <laughs> right? And all the brothers said, amen. Or maybe our new moms would say, so we don't have to nurse our babies in a dingy storage closet anymore. There's a lot of good reasons to invest in such a thing. But there's got to be more than creature comfort. In fact, I'm convictionally opposed, and I think you would be too, to calling on God's people to sacrificially give of their resources simply so we or others after us can have a more comfortable place to gather. I don't think that's a good enough reason to make big sacrifices to develop some property. It's not, 2 Corinthians 8.13, for the ease of others and our affliction. That's not why we should give sacrificially. This gym, so long as we're permitted to gather here, in my estimation, is far more than ample for all the comfort we need. Churches are not the building. I know you know that. I do believe buildings that are owned by churches can be mighty weapons. They can also be a mighty albatross. But rightly invested in and utilized, they can be mighty weapons in the hand of the Lord for gospel advance today and for many, many tomorrows. With that in mind, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1. We're going to read all 15 verses. Hear the word of the living God. For it is superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints. For I know your readiness of which I boast about you to the Macedonians, namely, that Achaia has been prepared since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I have sent the brethren in order that our boasting about you may not be made empty in this case, so that, as I was saying, you may be prepared. Otherwise, if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to speak of you, will be put to shame by this confidence. So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that would go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. Verse 6. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always, 
having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, quote, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Verse 11, you will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but it is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all. While they also, by prayer on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Join me in prayer. Let's ask for God's help. Father, thank you for all the people who you prompted to make all the sacrifices that we won't know about until eternity. And we really look forward to meeting those people and knowing about those sacrifices. But all the people and all the sacrifices that you prompted so that we would hear the gospel today. And so long as Jesus tarries, we ask that this congregation would be able to sacrifice in our generation so that those behind us who are yet to be born will hear the gospel that we're about to hear today. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. I've prayed a lot this week because, to be quite honest, I don't know what I think about sermons like this. One commentator said of this passage that most people subconsciously, knowing that a sermon about money is coming, quote, employ a kind of mental air defense system to deflect any appeals for money that their radar screen picks up as approaching their way. You may have heard of Israel's Iron Dome, right? Missiles come in, they get obliterated before they land because there's this little air defense system uh, that they've got that works really well. We're a lot like that. So I've prayed this way, among other things, Father, would you bless the members of this church, like I prayed last week, to double their household income at least if they'll use said blessing for kingdom purposes. A lot of us would love to have a doubled household income It's a heart matter more than anything. I've also prayed that the Lord would bless the members of this church with all the needed resources and the cheerful generosity to support the work of the gospel, both being proclaimed in our generation and advanced and propagated into the generations yet to come. So before we get too antsy that today's preacher is going to lay on the guilt or make some kind of shyster money grab, it's important for us to understand a little bit of the backstory of 2 Corinthians 9 so that we don't misread it and so that we can try to apply it to our lives. The Corinthian church had already promised to give a, quote, generous gift 
to the relief of the saints in Jerusalem who were suffering for a variety of reasons, perhaps famine, passive persecution, like, oh, you Jews now are Christians, we Jews who now kind of run the system here are going to withhold from you rations and provisions during this famine so that you just kind of die off or leave. All right, they were suffering for a variety of reasons. The church in Corinth, which is in another place geographically and in a Gentile part of the world, in Achaia, decided at least a year, Paul tells us, before he wrote 2 Corinthians, that they would give money to them because they love their brothers and sisters. So they made that pledge more than a year prior. Chapter 8 makes that clear. Paul's previous letter, 1 Corinthians, refers to this in the last chapter. Chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians opens this way. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also on the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collection be made when I come. He's saying every week, just like all the churches do, and you give your money willingly and freely, Take some of that and put it aside for this ministry that you've already promised you want to be part of, and I'm telling all the churches in Galatia to do that as well. So from these verses, we can deduce one pattern in New Testament churches. They had a practice of collecting offerings to support the work of the church and the spread of the gospel, quote, on the first day of every week, 1 Corinthians 16, 2, and Paul instructed them to take some of that collection, quote, for the saints. He's talking about the saints in Jerusalem in this case, 1 Corinthians 16, 1, that's who he's talking about. So Paul's not talking to them about something that they didn't have any categories for. They already made the pledge, they wanted to be involved, Paul's reminding them about that. In 2 Corinthians 8, Paul tells them that other churches, to his great delight and surprise, have also wanted to get involved in said support because they heard that the Corinthians wanted to be involved. Do you see the compounding effect, how this works? When people hear about the grace of God in one congregation, it causes other congregations to want to get involved as well. That's 2 Corinthians 8, 1 to 4. It's also 2 Corinthians 9, 1 to 5. One more thing about backstory. In chapter 8, Paul talks about the Macedonians being encouraged by the grace of God in the Corinthians, which led the Macedonians to give sacrificially also. In our chapter, Paul instructs the Corinthians to go ahead and prepare their pledge gift so that when he comes, they'll already be ready. And then he can take it on his way to Jerusalem. Pillar New Testament commentary said about this whole situation, Paul seeks to bind the Corinthians not only to himself, but also to other churches. He exhorts the Corinthians afresh to complete their uh, promised gift, and he's now coming from Macedonia where other churches, unexpected to Paul, have now made a sacrificial contribution to the collection to also go to Jerusalem. I said this sermon's already been preached several times, it's been proclaimed, it's been articulated, Cassie's prayer, Lauren's prayer, Ben's prayer, Brian's prayer, opening welcome. You've already heard the message. Let me remind you. Two points, verses 1 to 5 and then verse 6 to 15. Verses 1 to 5, talk about long titles to a sermon point. Don't write this down. This is the point. Verses 1 to 5, fulfill your pledge to give freely to the Lord's work. Like, don't promise and not do it. 
fulfill your pledge to give freely to the Lord's work because your generosity toward the work of Christ begets more Christians being generous toward the work of Christ. What Paul says in verses 1 to 5, fulfill your pledge because I'm not, I hadn't, I hadn't circled back to you yet to collect what you promised a year ago, but on the way, some other churches heard about what you're doing and they already gave as a result. So before I could even get to you to collect what you promised, other churches heard about it and I've already collected from them. So now when I get to you, it would be, Paul says, a shame to you to not do it because these other churches have already done it because they heard God gave you the grace to do it. Let's talk about that for just a minute. There's something in verses 1 to 5 about what I would describe as holy momentum. The more God allows Christians and churches to see the evidence of his grace in other Christians and churches, Christians inevitably get swept up in that grace themselves. I'm going to say that to you in a very personal, practical way that has nothing to do with your money for just a moment. If you can be around somebody who's growing in their knowledge and love of Jesus, and they talk to you about that or somehow express that to you, and it doesn't kindle the embers of your flame for Christ, that's a big problem. Because Christianity, I'm going to say this multiple times today, is not only taught, it is also caught. When Christ is in you and Christ is in another person and you see and hear Christ working in them, it should woo you to Christ. So my question is, are you being wooed the more you're around as people who are growing in knowledge and love for Jesus? I'm not talking about stagnant, lukewarm, whatever category you want to call, backslidden, carnal. What, I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about somebody who is growing in their knowing and loving of Jesus. What does that do to you when you're around them? Nothing? That's a problem. That's a really big problem. We could flip it the other way. Are you stoking the embers of the coals of other people's knowing and loving of Jesus. Others should also have their embers fired up for Christ because they're around you. So if they're not conversely affected, that's also a problem. So as it relates to congregations and their sacrificial giving, Paul's saying, look, these churches gave because they heard about God's grace in you. It affected them. So we say a lot around here that God wants every Christian to embed his or her life in a local church because Christianity is both taught. God wrote us a big book, but it's also caught. We need the faith family to learn what it actually looks like to live out this walk with Christ. So Paul wanted the Corinthian church to know, verses 1 to 5, that the Macedonian churches gave money to the relief of the brothers and sisters in Judea. By the way, All the people Paul's collecting from are non-Jewish. They're all Gentiles. And they're giving money to the relief of their brothers and sisters in Judea, all of whom are now completed Jews. They have come to Christ, but they were reared in Judaism. So there's all kind of applications going on here. One of which could be drawn out for the inter-ethnic challenges of our day, sacrificial love of Christians across ethnic lines 
obliterate all kind of worldly lies about what the gospel does to people's hearts. That's another sermon. The Lausanne Movement for World Evangelization has a key vision. Christians are to care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. These New Testament churches cared that their brothers and sisters were suffering physically, monetarily, spiritually. We should care about that. The reason I also believe we should invest in the gospel getting to the next generation is because we especially care about eternal suffering. That's why we're mainly concerned about the generations behind us and the Corinthians had benefited from the gospel getting from Jerusalem to them. Now they should care about the welfare of their brothers and sisters who got them the gospel. Chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, it is superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the Macedonians, namely, that Achaia has been prepared since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. Now, I got to admit, there's a really bad way. I said it in our pre-service little meeting with those who are helping out in various ways today, and we prayed about it. There's a there's a very bad way to read 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. It's easy to read it badly. The bad way to read it is to conclude from some of the phrases that Paul's twisting their arm to give their money. One commentator put it this way, if it appears that Paul has twisted their arms to get them to give, then the result would be their giving would be ungrateful and they would be stingy in the way they give. They would give as little as possible just to get the guilt off their back. He went on to write, if the money donated to the saints comes as a levy squeezed out of them, it may provide some needed assistance to the poor. Like it'll do the trick, but it will undermine the whole intent of the project. The gift is not a tax nor is it to be a burden that weighs them down with guilt. All too often, Christians give out of a sense of guilt rather than a glad heart. Paul does not want the Corinthians to feel that this offering was somehow imposed on them. Generous giving only comes when it's voluntary and not coerced. So let me say this. I don't believe the New Testament commands a tithe in terms of a tenth. I don't believe that. I believe the New Testament commands all, not a tenth. And the way Christians show that they give their all to Christ is they're as generous as they can be with the resources God's entrusted to them. Not as little as is required so as to get guilt off our conscience. Another commentator said about verses one to five, Paul mentions that they had already pledged to make a generous gift. If they back out of their promise, they would be pledged dodgers. Paul doesn't want these churches who had already given to suffer discouragement by learning that the Corinthians were all bark and no bite, all pledge, no action in their year-old-plus pledge to contribute to the Lord's work, verses 3 to 5, Paul just says, how practical is this? I don't want you to be put to shame. 
I love you guys. I'm going to send some people ahead of me so that when I get there, it's already prepared. No surprise, no shock, no bait and switch. You said it. That's an evidence of God's grace. I know you want to give it. Other churches are too. Let me help you prepare to do that well. All right. Now, this points so radically to the gospel. Last week, we looked at the way our contributions are to be given as God stirs our heart. We looked at the book of Exodus and the preparation of the Old Testament temple and all of its fine materials and provisions. God stirred people's hearts to give. Exodus tells us that very plainly. Centuries later, God is still doing the same thing in the New Testament in the city of Corinth, in the cities of Macedonia. He's just stirring Christians' heart to be involved in his work. We should therefore give freely, not under compulsion. Why should we ultimately do this? We'll, we'll get more to the gospel at the very end, but we got to get there right now. We should ultimately and very freely and cheerfully give because nobody has more ultimately and freely given than our God. God actually made a pledge a long time ago that he would give an extravagant, bountiful gift. He did not back out of his promise. In eternity past, he promised that he would give his whole heart to you. For centuries of Old Testament generations, he kept unfolding that promise in increasing clarity. And in the life of the Lord Jesus and in his death in our place, in his victorious resurrection that signed all God's promises, yes, for all who believe, God freely, joyfully, and cheerfully gave his all for us. In 2 Corinthians 8, it is that gospel that Paul actually grounds the whole giving of the Corinthian church to Jerusalem in. Listen to how he says it in the middle of chapter 8. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You're talking about money for Jerusalem. Why are we now in the grace of Christ? You know his grace. Do you know his grace? What does grace look like in Jesus, Paul? It looks like an extravagantly rich redeemer giving everything to become poor because through his work alone, not what you add to him or give to him, you're not paying Jesus back for your salvation, through his poverty, you get to enjoy his eternal riches. That's 2 Corinthians 8, 9. And then he goes on to talk about this monetary giving again. He grounds it all in the cross. And if you look at the cross and believe, if you look at the cross and love the Savior who died for you, it's hard, I was going to say impossible, but we all struggle with sin. So I'm going to say it's really hard to look at the cross honestly and say, thank you, God, for giving your all. I don't want to be like that. The Christian heart is very slow starting. We all feel cold and indifferent. And sometimes we do feel guilted into obedience. But I'll just quote Stephen Olford and say, 
What if you don't feel like praying? He says, pray when you don't feel like it, pray when you do feel like it, and pray until you feel like it. Should you not pray because you don't feel like praying? No. Should you not give because you don't feel like giving? No. Can you be motivated by wrong things like guilt? Yes. Should that mean you shouldn't give? No. Sometimes God changes your heart in your obedience, not before it. So verses 6 to 15 is where we'll close. It's another long title of sermon point. Giving by God's grace is always preceded and followed by receiving more grace than you give because you cannot outgive God. To quote one commentary, summarizing verses 6 to 15, the author wrote this. Paul makes it clear that he understands the Macedonians' act of giving as receiving the grace of God. He says they gave by grace. They didn't give to get grace. They gave because they were given grace. Do you see how that works? Their giving was preceded by receiving They didn't give to get, they gave because they already got. Okay, so this author goes on to say, God is present and active in human giving in such a way that humans are givers, but finally they are ultimately receivers. This profound theology of gift continues through Paul's argument in chapters 8 and 9 and appears emphatically in his closing exclamation of chapter 9, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. This is the way I hear 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And I've commended listening to the Bible to those of you who are like me and you learn later than you wish you would have that you're more of an auditory learner than a visual. So just listen to the Bible if that's you. I listened to 2 Corinthians three and a half times Friday, just on repeat. And one thing chapter eight and nine felt like was this. is a drum roll. And the last verse of chapter nine is a cymbal smash. It's the climax. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. One translation I heard this morning, we, I read it with a couple of our members before the service. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. God has given the most. All of our giving is a faint reflection of what he's given to us, and we give, our point is, in a way that is both preceded and followed by receiving more grace than we give. You can't outgive God. Now look at this principle in verse 6, because if it weren't in the Bible, I would be very hesitant to say it to you, because I would be a little cringy if somebody said it to me without showing it to me in the Bible. Verse 6. He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So Paul wants us to know there's a principle of reciprocity in Scripture. Sow a little, reap a little. Sow more, reap more. That's the reciprocal relationship. So we want the church to know he's not garnishing their wages. Nobody's being taxed for Jesus. He wanted them to know that our giving to the Lord and to his work somehow boomerangs back to us. There's very bad ways to read this. I've already admitted that. But when we give out of a cheerful heart, not under compulsion, but willingly, that's Paul's phrase, I'm saying it 
boomerangs back. There's a principle of reciprocity. Sow a lot, reap a lot. Sow a little, reap a little. It's right there in Scripture. Just like a farmer who is sowing seed liberally all across his acreage of farming, he's doing so with a hope, with a view toward a future harvest, a future crop. We should give that way. That's a very biblical idea. It does not strip giving of its virtue to want to be blessed as a result of it. It's not sinful to say, God, please bless me. I'll tell you one one of my many things I do every week. I see these little plates down here. And when I'm coming up to prepare and check the microphone, this is my little phrase to say a lot. I pray every week, touch the nations. That's what I pray. Take this little widow's mite, somehow get the gospel to the far edges of the world. I don't know how you're going to do it. That's my prayer. And I pray whoever does this or whatever way you give to Christ and his kingdom and his work, bless the people for it. That's verse 6. That's the principle of reciprocity in Scripture. Proverbs 22.9 is what Paul had in mind in verse 6. He who is generous will be blessed for he gives some of his food to the poor. There's no way around this principle in Scripture. I mean, it's all over the place. Our generous giving out of our private resources is the means that God has purposed to use to carry on his work in the world and to be a primary channel of the inflow of his blessing into the lives of his people. Proverbs eleven twenty four. it was prayed in our prayer time by one of our sisters. There is one who scatters and yet increases all the more. There's one who withholds what is justly due and it results in only want. The generous man will be prosperous and he who waters will himself be watered. Proverbs 11, 24 and 25. In Malachi, God speaks to his people in no uncertain terms. I almost made it the primary sermon text for today. Maybe... We've preached, I think this is the third sermon, I might be wrong about that, in 16 years on money. Last week, this week, and one by Brian years ago. May have been another one. We're not beating this drum all the time. We probably should preach on it more because verses like Malachi 3 are in your Bible. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open to you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Is that not reciprocity? Is that not a boomerang in some sense? Paul picks up the same principle in Galatians chapter 6. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. It's bigger than our pocketbook, but it's not less. Jesus had a lot to say about money more than anybody in all of Scripture. Jesus talks about money. If I could squeeze all of his teaching down into one little phrase and try to say it as faithfully as I can, I would say this is what Jesus taught about money. Our use of it is a heart thermometer. That's, I think you can put all his teaching into that phrase and it not be perfect but faithful. Your bank account's not a thermostat that controls your spiritual temperature. It's a thermometer that tells you if you're healthy. Your money is a heart thermometer. That's why John Chrysostom in the early centuries of the church said the love of money is a severe mistress. She'll abuse you. Jesus' favorite book to quote from during his three and a half year ministry on planet earth was Deuteronomy. 
He apparently had the whole book memorized. He quoted from it liberally, freely, and verbatim on regular occasion. He alluded to Deuteronomy 15 on one occasion, which says, if there's a poor man with you, one of your brothers, you shall not harden your heart nor close your hand from your poor brother, which is the passage I think Paul's thinking about in 2 Corinthians 9. Deuteronomy 15.9 says, beware that there is no base thought in your heart and your eye is not hostile toward your poor brother and you give him nothing. Then he may cry to the Lord against you and it will be a sin in you. You shall generously give to him and your heart shall not be grieved when you give to him because for this thing, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and all your undertakings. If you don't want a blessing, don't give to your poor brother. If you do, give. That's Deuteronomy 15, 7 to 10. So our second point, verses 6 to 15, I got three applications, but I'm going to tell you four arguments Paul makes. I'll just show them to you in the passage. The four things Paul says in verses 6 to 15 that incentivize giving. All right, you look at them and you can see if I'm making them up or if they're in there. Number one, it will lead to greater spiritual wealth. That's verses 8 to 10. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed, for it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, that's the book of Psalms, his righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. So the point is, incentivizing Christian giving should include the reality it will lead to greater spiritual wealth. So if you're a sponge that soaks all in and nothing goes out, you deplete your spiritual wealth. If you're a pipeline that flows in and out, it increases your capacity for the enjoyment of God. That's verses 8 to 10. God will make all grace abound to you with his all sufficiency in everything so you have an abundance for all good stuff. Number two Verses 11 to 13, God will receive more thanksgiving and praise. Which, by the way, ought to be the number one thing you care about in your life if you belong to Christ. God getting more praise, God getting more thanks from more people, that's native to the Christian heart. Look at verse 12, for the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but it's also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. A lot of people are praising God because of your generosity, church at Corinth. That's what every church would want. Number three, the global church, the universal, the little c Catholic, the worldwide church will be unified and strengthened as individual Christians give faithfully to their local church. This is verses 13 and 14. Verse 13 especially, because of the proof of this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all. They will glorify God because of you. Like more unity and more strength in the big body of Christ because some little wrinkled old lady in Corinth gave 1 Corinthians 16 on the first day of the week and a little bit of her giving was sent to Jerusalem? Yes. So ordinary. So extraordinary. Number four, verse 14, those who benefit from your generosity will praise God for you 
because it will provoke them to pray for you. One of the things the fellow who discipled me that I talk about all the time challenged me to do was pray less for myself and more for other people. And then he said, when I pray for myself, pray that God will put me on the hearts of other people. <laughs> so they'll pray for me. So me spend most of my time praying for them, trust that he'll raise up other people who will pray for me. So I've tried to follow that pattern for the most part. How will other people be prompted to pray for you? Especially when they see you, un, God forbid, run headlong into sin. That'll prompt them to pray for you. But most especially when they see the grace of God flow through your life. They'll pray for you. That's verse 14. While they also, by prayer on your behalf, yearn for you. Why? Because of the surpassing grace of God in you. And he ties all of the grace of God in them and the grace of God in the Macedonians to their sacrificial monetary giving. When other churches see that, they'll know Jesus has your heart because Jesus has your wallet. And they'll start praying for you because they'll want to be like that too. Okay, how does one develop such a happy spirit about giving? Well, one commentator wrote, church leaders throughout the ages have faced the same challenge that confronted Paul. So what Paul does is presents these four principles I just showed you as incentives for why we should give. And then he ends, as I said, with the symbol smash, all in there. Verse 15, memorize it right now. You should know it when you leave the building today, and may we never forget it. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. That's a good memory verse. If you're having a hard time letting go of your most valuable possessions, unlike the sinful woman last week who broke her alabaster vial over the feet of Jesus, if you're having a hard time letting go of your most valuable possessions and placing your whole life in God's hands, then I commend to you again a good long look at the gospel. You shouldn't feel begrudging or guilted into Christian giving. Verse 7 and 8, everybody should do as he's purposed in his own heart, not grudgingly, not under compulsion, because God loves a cheerful giver. Not begrudging, not under compulsion, not because of guilt. But 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says, when the grace of God keeps spreading to more and more people because of you, quote, more thanks is given to God. That's our mission as a church. All for whom Jesus died, giving Jesus all the glory he deserves. That's it. The lamb that was slain is worthy of the reward of his suffering. And so as we, verse 15, look to the inestimable, inexplainable, indescribable gift of God at the cross of Christ, we see his heart. We see his bent to give. We see his disposition. He doesn't have to conjure up a guilt-laden reason to put Jesus forward as our Savior. God said in Hebrews 12 that Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. He doesn't have, as we say often, buyer's remorse. He's not sorry that he saved you. In Isaiah, he calls you Beulah. 
beloved, desired. Zephaniah says he rejoices over you with shouts of joy. He's so happy that he gave everything to have you. And if you look at his heart, if you stare at the cross, if you see that God gave all for you, that's why I said earlier it's hard. I'm not going to say impossible because I'm not trying to put people who battle for assurance that are real Christians in a place of incessant battle. But I'm going to say hard, like hard, 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 hard. Next to impossible to just stare at the cross and not want to be like that. Christian generosity is simply a reflection of the most benevolent of all. So here's the application, and we're going to sing, Is He Worthy? Which will be the conclusion of our service. I think that's the song, right? I'm not trying to surprise anybody. Okay, great. We prepared that one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. This is super practical, I hope, and very achievable. Pray individually. Ask God to make your heart glad to give to his work in the world. And I said last week, and I say unapologetically again, and we can say it from this passage in 1 Corinthians 16, the way New Testament Christians gave freely was to their local church. So if you're not a member here, my prayer this week for you is that the church where you're a member, budget would increase. Don't give here, give there. Belong to a church, make that your primary arsenal for giving, ask God to make your heart glad for that, so pray about it. When a penny passes through your fingertips or more, Ask God to touch the nations with it, to use it all for his glory. Prayer doesn't change God, prayer changes you, and he's already committed to getting the gospel deeper into the lives of his people and dispersed around the world. So ask him to help you to yield your resources back to him for his glory, for your joy. Number two, have a give our all to Jesus talk with whoever lives under your roof. Like, plan that. I I challenge you to try to get that this week, maybe this afternoon. And this is what I mean by give our all to Jesus. Read chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians and ask yourself together questions like this. Is it true that if Jesus has my heart, he'll have my money? Ask him, help us to want to invest, not begrudgingly but cheerfully, in your church. Ask him, what would that look like for our family if we were to walk faithfully? Maybe you are walking faithfully. Ask him. He's good at his job. He will lead you. He will help you. I've heard many stories about spouses going to separate rooms and praying and coming back together and writing stuff on paper and trading it with each other about how God's leading them when they have conversations like this and the numbers being almost identical. God's really good at leading his people. Just ask him. Parents, let your kids know what you give to your church. Talk to them about that. That doesn't rob you of a blessing. It doesn't strip it of virtue if your left hand knows what your right hand is doing. You know that Jesus said that that's not the principle we're supposed to live by. Right? Go read the passage. Teach your kids to give to their church from the first dollar that they receive. And teach them why. You're not paying God back. You're joining him in his great work of gospel advance near and far to the end of the ages. I'm going to tell you something I I said last week I would get rebuked 
about this if I asked for permission, so I'm going to ask for forgiveness, so I told a story. I'm going to tell another story. Before she went to be with Jesus, Pastor Rick and his wife decided, I still don't know what this means. I've just heard him say it to me a few times. The church is in their will. I, think he, I don't know what it means. The Lord knows what it means, and I'm not, it's not my business to know what it means. I told you last week, no elder knows what anybody gives to the church except for Brian. But I take that to mean signing over a chunk of it to the church when he goes to glory. I assure you, he will not care about it anymore once he goes to glory. Have a talk. Ask other Christians. Try to be as generous as you can be, not as little as you can be. That's the big idea. Third, finally, ask God if he wants you to be part of an above and beyond effort to help establish the gospel in Memphis long term. And I say above and beyond because I don't think this should be core to our general Christian generosity. I think it's above and beyond. I mean to a building thing. Should we develop that property? The Lord knows. Will we be able to? He'll provide if so. I think that's an above and beyond. That's not our normal Christian giving. That's extra giving. That's why we have a Jesus is worthy fund. I'm asking all of our church members between now and October to have these talks in your family to pray about it personally, to pray about it as a household, and consider renewing your pledge if you've already made one or beginning a pledge if you haven't. Because there will be people born 200 years from now if Jesus tarries, like in Covington, and it would be really advantageous for the city center to have a gospel flag that says Jesus is Lord. Tracy and I are still contributing our little beans to the Jesus is Worthy fund monthly. We invite you to share in that joy with us. I just tell you that because Paul told other churches, hey, they're giving, they're giving, they're giving, and it encouraged them all. We're doing that. I'm not asking anybody to do anything that, you know, put a load on somebody else's shoulders like the Pharisees that they're unwilling to carry. Today, I walked by that property. I took the long way to church. Two blocks away is where I live. We walked, Addie and I, and I just prayed. Addie didn't know this. I prayed that her grandkids would have access to the gospel because of whatever Jesus does with that property. And if you want to be a little morbid as we conclude, it's a good illustration, even though a little morbid. Um, One of my pastor friends told me he's been walking through cemeteries for the last three or four years in his kind of free time. And uh, all of his buddies, he's in Bowling Green, Kentucky, think he's a little strange. And he's been reading all the headstones. And as he stands there and looks over a sea of headstones, he realizes he doesn't know any of them. He doesn't know their name, doesn't know their family, doesn't know anything about any of them. And it helps him to, as Jonathan Edwards said when he was 19 years old in his resolutions, to think often of death. It's actually healthy. Not something you should avoid, you should actually contemplate. And and my friend in Bowling Green, the pastor there, said uh, it just helps him realize that pretty soon he's going to be one of those headstones and nobody's going to know anything about him. And then he said it really hit him hard when he realized that his son's grandchildren probably won't know his first name. Now I want you to think about that. Do you know the first name that many generations away on both sides of the family tree. His son's grandchildren may not know his first name. 
we're not really significant. That's the point. It's not about us. It's about him. What could we do today, even if nobody else knows our name? Preach the gospel, die, be forgotten. That's a good way to live. But what could we do today to try to get the gospel to people so that they know his name? There's a lot. And we're here today because a lot, a lot of other people lived by that ethic. I think Christians are free to support many kingdom advancing causes in their lifetime with the resources God's given them. That's between you and the Lord, unity without uniformity. You give as God leads you to whatever sources God directs you. Do so cheerfully, do so regularly. I do believe every Christian should give sacrificially to their local church. The reason I said above and beyond is because Paul told the Corinthians, the Macedonians gave different. Do you remember the difference? A wealth of generosity with great cheerfulness, here it comes, out of an abundance of poverty beyond their ability. They didn't have a lot of money. They had almost none. And they still gave, to quote God, generously and cheerfully. Above and beyond. May the Lord help us and help us to help each other to look at the cross and say, thank you, God, for your indescribable gift. Now let my life reflect that in every way. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we do pray that you would erase from our mind everything I said wrong and out of step with Scripture and your heart. Just cause us to forget it forever. If anything I said is right and in accord with Scripture, elevate it in our mind. Cause it to fester. And help us, Lord, to be Christ-centered, truly, in our whole life and as a congregation to give our all for Christ who gave his all for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.